Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Public Policy podcast, a part of the New Books Network. I'm Nick Sagos. The New Books Network is a series of podcasts dedicated to raising the level of public discourse by introducing serious authors to serious audiences. My guests today are James E. Fleming, the Honorable Frank R. Kennison Distinguished Scholar in Law, Associate Dean of Intellectual Life and Professor of Law at Boston University. Professor Fleming is also the Vice President of the American Society for Political and Legal Philosophy. Linda C. McLean is Paul M. Siskin Research Scholar and Professor of Law, also at Boston University. She is also Chair-Elect of the Association of American Law School Section on Family and Juvenile Law. Their book, entitled Ordered Liberty, Rights, Responsibilities, and Virtues, is out now from Harvard University Press. Many have argued in recent years that the U.S. constitutional system exalts individual rights over responsibilities, virtues, and the common good. Answering the charges against liberal theories of rights, Fleming and McLean develop and defend a civic liberalism that takes responsibilities and virtues as well as rights seriously. They provide an account of ordered liberty that protects basic liberties stringently, but not absolutely, and permits government to encourage responsibility and inculcate civic virtues without sacrificing personal autonomy to collective determination. Hello. 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 I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourselves. Where were each of you born? That kind of thing. Uh, I'm from the Midwest, from Ohio. Uh, I grew up in Toledo and various other places uh, because my father was in the military. I went to Oberlin College also in Ohio, and then to graduate school in um, University of Chicago, and then law school at Georgetown, and then NYU. So I've been various places, and I lived in New York many years until Jim Fleming and I relocated to Boston about uh, several years ago. Seven years ago. So I grew up on a farm in Missouri, uh, and I went to University of Missouri as an undergraduate. Then I got a Ph.D. in political science at Princeton, where I wrote a dissertation in constitutional theory. Then I went to Harvard Law School. And uh, we met practicing law many years ago in New York City, and we became law professors the same time, 1991. So did either of you have a specific mentor in graduate school? Well, I uh, got my PhD at Princeton, uh, but I wrote my dissertation uh, developing a Rawlsian constitutional theory, that is, the theory uh, that built upon the work of John Rawls in political philosophy uh, and applied it to an understanding of the rights that our constitutional order protects. I did study with John Rawls at Harvard as well. I think we also both were greatly influenced by uh, Ronald Dworkin, uh, a leading liberal legal philosopher and constitutional theorist. And Linda uh, studied with Ronald Workin at uh, New York University. And finally, I wouldn't count among my mentors my PhD advisor at Princeton, uh, Walter Murphy, who was very important in keeping normative constitutional studies alive in the discipline of political science. A lot of political science on courts is about the inst- is about institutions, uh, or it's about judicial behavior. He, uh, for a generation, kept alive. Uh, normative study about constitutional interpretation and the, and uh, the basis for constitutional rights. Well, I didn't. I don't have a PhD, so um, my ma- my graduate degrees are, are masters 
degrees. But uh, as Jim said, when I was at NYU, I did uh, have a chance to study with uh, Ronald Dworkin. Um, and certainly, I, I through Jim, I met Rawls several times and had a chance to share some of my work with him and comment on his work. Uh, and also, uh, I have been very um, fortunate in having uh, mentors uh, in, in gender and law or feminist theory and law. When I went to NYU, I um, got to know some of the faculty, not only at NYU, but also at Columbia. Martha Feynman was then at Columbia. Now she's at Emory. And I've also had a chance to get to know some feminist political theorists. So I think my roots are sort of both uh, liberal uh, as well as feminist. And I've benefited from from various, uh, you know, sort of relationships with senior scholars over the years. The next logical question is, how did you come to to conceive of and then eventually write Ordered Liberty? But what was the impetus for, for that specific book? Well, that's a, there are many parts of the answer to that question. I'll try to keep it succinct. Um, both of us are liberals who, in Ronald Dworkin's terms, believed in taking rights seriously, and we observed that liberalism was under attack uh, from a number of quarters, in particular for uh, licensing irresponsible conduct and for failing to recognize the importance of inculcating civic virtues. Uh, And so early in our careers, we began engaging with some of these critiques of liberalism we aim to reconstruct it in the context of constitutional law uh, to, as we put it in the book, not only take rights seriously, but also take responsibilities and virtues seriously to recognize that even liberals recognize the importance of uh, government in promoting responsible exercise of rights, sort of compelling people's decisions, and also we try to develop a constitutional liberalism by analogy by analogy to John Rawls's uh, political liberalism, that recognized that government and civil society shared important roles in fostering civic virtues that are necessary for democratic and personal self-government. Uh, so, in in short, it was a concern to develop a, if you will, a moralized uh, liberalism that also uh, integrated concerns uh, from within feminism for securing the status of equal citizenship for. Uh, women. Um, in terms of my own um, introduction to these issues, you know, I started teaching in the early 1990s, and at that time, uh, there was a lot of different. For, there were a lot of different forms of criticisms of liberalism, liberal rights. There were sort of the new communitarian movement that Amitai Etzioni launched, um, uh, trying to link rights with responsibilities. There were kind of uh, perpetual critiques of liberalism and liberal rights from feminists. There was sort of the civic Republican type of critiques like Michael Sandel over at Harvard uh, is famous for. And I just found myself very um, intrigued by so many different critiques of liberalism and liberal rights and liberal self-government. And so a lot of my early writing was trying to engage with what it was people thought was wrong and trying to kind of clear away the brush to sort out what seemed like a legitimate critique and what was a caricature. So that was what I had worked on, um, you know, as these various social movements like calls to renew communitarianism, calls to renew civil society, calls to promote marriage, so forth and so on. A lot of different attempts to link rights 
to responsibility, but somehow thinking that something about liberal rights or the liberal idea of, of uh, who we are as people was to blame. Right. So, so over over a number of years, we wrote uh, pieces together and separately that were engaging with these various criticisms of liberalism. And a few uh, years ago, uh, I proposed to Linda that we try to pull it all together as a coherent book. Uh, and so um, in doing that, we came to see that we were engaging with a cluster of, I guess, four uh, critiques, liberal theories of rights, that what we call the irresponsibility critique, the neutrality critique, that is that liberalism requires the government to be neutral as among competing conceptions of the good life and can't promote virtues. The wrongness critique, that's the idea that liberals use empty toleration arguments to justify wrong conduct rather than justifying rights on the basis of the moral goods and virtues promoted by uh, protecting rights. And finally, the, the absoluteness critique, the argument that liberals took rights too absolutely to the exclusion of responsibilities and virtues. And those four critiques became kind of the basis for structuring the book. Uh, and we tried to pull it together and develop a, a framework uh, for addressing questions uh, involving rights, responsibilities, and virtues. We'll give you a pause now right. so you can ask something. Right. <laughs> no, that's that's perfect. Um, so I guess one question I'd have is how do you sidestep the sort of standard Rawlsian criticism that perhaps you err on the side of, of providing a comprehensive view despite yourselves rather than um, uh, a fully political rather than metaphysical view? Well, I think we've come at that a couple different ways. In my own work and trying to um, integrate a kind of liberal political theory approach with feminist concerns, I've drawn on uh, Rawls's notion of um, that it's permissible for the state to promote um, uh, a certain uh, political values, right, or public values such as sex equality. And one thing that Rawls did in responding to some prominent feminist critiques like that of the late Susan Muller Oaken was to clarify that political liberalism was not neutral in terms of sex equality, right? You didn't, you don't have to be there's a sort of redu reductive view of, of political liberalism that it can't embrace any particular value other than, say, liberal autonomy. But Rawls was very careful to say that things like protecting children as future citizens, you know, the basic equality of women, uh, things like that were uh, uh, political values that the state could promote. And so that was one way that I tried to show my feminist friends that you could get pretty far within a liberal framework without going down the dreaded path of, as you put it, comprehensive liberalism. But, but frankly, um, and Jim can talk more about this, we plead guilty to a certain form of mild perfectionism, you know, about mm -hmm. certain values and certain virtues. And, and Jim can right. say a little bit more right. about that. Also, I think that the, the kinds of uh, political values or civic virtues that we think government can seek to inculcate through civic education and other matters are not peculiar to any particular comprehensive religious or philosophical view of good life. They tend to be kind of generic all-purpose virtues and competences of uh, engaged uh, uh, conscientious citizenship rather than being the values or the virtues that only particular sectarian views could embrace or espouse. Um, 
Now, in going down the road of developing a project like this, you tend to get criticized either as having a theory that's too thick or a theory that's too thin. Uh, and so the, the, the true comprehensive liberals who want to use the state to engage in soul craft and sculpt uh, uh, good citizens in a vigorous way will find our view too thin, uh, too, the values be too generic. On the other hand, uh, the skeptics, the proponents of neutrality, the people who fear or hate government, the libertarians, they're going to find our project of constitutional liberalism and uh, recognizing a role for government, encouraging responsibility, and promoting civic virtues too thick. And even within uh, Rawlsians, there are going to be some people who say, well, you went wrong in embracing a mild form of perfectionism. But there are other people who will say, no, you should have gone further. So generally, when you're getting hit on both sides, I take comfort that maybe you're in a pretty good spot. Well, right, right. but there are some very big challenges um, about this whole question of the role of the state in uh, encouraging, uh, you know, civic virtues and qualities that are important for good citizenship. In our book, we use the example of education. There's a lot of controversy over the content of civic education, for example, and, you know, a, a number of uh, religious parents, for example, especially conservative religious parents who have moral opposition to, say, homosexual relationships or homosexual marriage are quite troubled by school curricula that try to teach people tolerance, that even might teach them respect for different family forms, including, say, marriages of same-sex couples. And as more states, I think we're now at 15, as more states actually have marriage open to same-sex couples, this increases the area conflict. Here in Massachusetts, one controversy we discuss in our book is when some Christian religious parents didn't want their children to have to be exposed to certain curricula about family diversity. They didn't say the school shouldn't teach it at all. They just said they shouldn't have to have their kids have those lessons. So I think that one of the controversies that's going to continue to be with us, and it's not easy, is is, um, claims by religious groups and religious leaders, religious uh, congregations that somehow movement in the direction of greater equality for gay men and lesbians directly threatens their religious liberty. Right. We didn't set out to write a book on same-sex marriage or anything of the sort, but as we uh, worked it up, we found that the issue of same-sex marriage uh, was an area where a whole lot of these different strands of the critique of liberalism converged. Uh, And so we ended up talking about it in several different contexts. One context was the one Linda just now discussed, when you're engaging in, when the state is engaging in civic education, trying to promote tolerance and respect for diversity. What do you do about uh, religious parents who are opposed to same-sex marriage or sanctioning same-sex relationships? Another area is, a related area is, what do you do, how do you take rights seriously when you're in a situation where there is a conflict or a clash of rights? The book deals with clashes between anti-discrimination laws, concerns to secure the status for gays and lesbians as equal citizenship, uh, as equal citizens on the one hand, and the claims of religious conservatives that these anti-discrimination laws somehow infringe their liberty of conscience. If, but, I, if I could just give an example. Right now, um, the Supreme Court of the United States has to decide whether to take, in this case you may have heard about out of New Mexico, where a photographer didn't want to photograph a a, a, a kind of commitment ceremony between two women. And 
yes. a lot mm-hmm. of people are on all over the people are all over the place and pretty heavy hitters are all over the place on what the court should do if it takes that case. So that's a great example. She's not a religious congregation. She's not a minister, but she's a person with Christian convictions that make her oppose homosexual, you know, intimate, uh, committed relationship, uh, celebrating them in any way. And, and yet she's involved in commerce. So the question is, can New Mexico's laws about anti-discrimination in public accommodations reach a photographer? And, and, you know, there's a range of views about what the right outcome uh, is. Uh, You know, there's comparable issues involving the Affordable Care Act and religious employers, people who are commercial employers but have religious convictions and don't want to have to be involved with contraception in any way. One final example that same-sex marriage illustrates that we examine in our book is how is how should we justify constitutional rights? Some critics, liberals say, well, liberals can only say, well, the state's got to be neutral and we just got to let people choose whatever they please. And so we've got to respect people's right to choose to marry whomever they please over and against the view that, no, we should justify rights on the basis of the goods or virtues promoted by protecting rights. Uh, and so in the context of same-sex marriage, one argument would be, well, people should just get to choose whoever they want to marry. But the other argument, and the argument that we uh, develop and say is compatible with uh, our constitutional liberalism, is we should justify rights like same-sex marriage in part on the ground of the moral goods or virtues secured by protecting that right. And this would enable you to recognize that same-sex couples typically are trying to pursue the same goods like commitment, security, protection, love, nurture, and the like, as opposite-sex couples are. And so instead of justifying same-sex marriage on the ground that we just get to choose whatever we damn well please without regard for the good of what is chosen, we try to show that a right of same-sex marriage is better justified as promoting uh, uh, analogous goods for uh, uh, gays as those that are already recognized for uh, straights. And In this uh, particular aspect of the book, we engaged uh, at great length with uh, Michael Sandel's uh, well-known civic republican criticisms of liberalism for being neutral and for justifying rights solely on the grounds of choice or autonomy, not on the grounds of goods or virtues. And we we think liberalism can embrace these kinds of arguments. Well, I want to be a little careful just to say that, you know, Right now in civil law, people can get married without showing they're good people. Yeah. So we're, we're not trying to hold uh, same-sex couples to some high standard being particularly worthy and good. We're just showing that when we think about the way that people talk about marriage, when you think about the way that courts and legislatures explain why marriage is so important, they talk about the rights and responsibilities that marriage entails as a civil status. And so what we're trying to say is when couples seek access to civil marriage, uh, uh, part of what they're seeking access to is benefits and obligations. And in Justice Kennedy's uh, opinion this summer in, in the DOMA case, uh, he did not go down the path because it wasn't before him of saying there's a fundamental right to marry under the federal constitution. But he did point out that New York, in deciding through its democratic process to allow same-sex couples to marry, recognized kind of the dignity that's attached to marriage as a status, and that part of that dignity is assuming rights and responsibilities. So that's sort of the whole point. There's a whole 
network of obligations and benefits as well as communal recognition that's attached to marriage. So it's not simply the right to be let alone or I do what I want. It's it's a sort of status and a part of membership in society. Yeah, and we connect that to um, what we call our constitutional liberalism's concern to secure the status of equal citizenship for all. And also, if I could just say one more thing about marriage, because sure. I think this is going to continue to be a big issue. One important distinction um, uh, that's often kind of uh, lost in these debates about marriage is the difference between marriage as a civil institution that the state licenses and regulates and marriage as a religious institution, a religious sacrament. And and so one time one thing we try to explain in our book is that some religious opponents of changing civil marriage laws believe that our civil law should be what the religious law is. And if you separate the two, that's bad for society. Like if somehow our civil law doesn't reflect God's law of marriage or the notion that it's one man and one woman, and this is kind of God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, that sort of thing, then this has very mm-hmm. bad consequences for society. So we try to show that, you know, civil marriage uh, is not the same thing as religious marriage. And, um, that you could you can you can sort of respect uh, and keep intact a notion of religious marriage, and you know by not forcing clergymen to perform marriages they don't believe in, or by not forcing churches to allow ceremonies they don't agree with, but still have marriage equality. And um, I think that that, like I said, that is going to be one of the big ongoing uh, sticking points uh, in the briefing before the Supreme Court in the Dalma case a number of religious organizations warned that any step toward recognizing marriage for same-sex couples would be a very deep threat to religious liberty. That's not something the court took on or discussed, but, you know, it, it's definitely out there. Right. right. I also noticed that the book, while it does address a whole host of important social issues, didn't address any issues having to do with immigration. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you wanted to say anything about that just briefly. Did you have a thought about what issues you thought it should address or would be important to address? Well, I was just thinking that it it poses a particularly interesting paradox if you have someone who is perhaps a migrant worker or, you know, a new a resident alien or something to the U.S., they would not have all of the same rights liberties, responsibilities, obligations as a citizen, or or would they, on your view? Do you think residency changes anything vis-a-vis virtues, civic virtues, or do you think that's just a matter of law that really isn't a salient moral issue? Well, sometimes when we use the term free and equal citizenship, we're using it sort of um, very specifically to refer to the status of literal citizen. But sometimes when people uh, use that term, you're talking more generally about people who are sort of resident within your borders. I mean, uh, Jim is a constitutional law expert, but certainly uh, the, the protections of the Constitution uh, are not only uh, limited to citizens, right? Right. When we talk about the status of equal citizenship, we're, we're talking about a, a, the status of equality which everyone is owed. We're not talking about a class of beneficiaries, a class of people who get these rights, as in only citizens get these rights. Although you're uh, right, certain right. at the present, you're right. Vote. I mean, right. there's been some movement out in California on this, but voting, there are certain things that only are uh, 
uh, open uh, to literal actual yeah. citizens. But, I mean, the guarantees of equal protection and things like that apply to people resident within the United States Certainly. borders, Certainly. right? Certainly. Also, um, one of the big issues that the book addresses is how best to justify constitutional rights in circumstances of moral pluralism. And obviously, moral pluralism has been created over time by waves of immigration right. into this country right. and right. Uh, and uh, moral and and the whole uh, history and conception of this country as a nation of immigrants importantly figures in any understanding of reasonable you know pluralism in America. And some of the some of the court's most famous cases about liberty and not imposing an orthodoxy on everyone came out of the context of you know either immigrant communities who wanted to learn in German or religious groups that wanted to educate their children in religious schools. So there's a long history of the kind of challenges of out of the many one or e pluribus unum, and and I think that. Um, Right now, some of the challenges uh, involve, um, uh, you know, trying to make sense of uh, of how you can have any meaningful concept of of American values, you know, in a highly pluralistic and diverse um, and diverse country. There's also a lot of issues of basic justice, as you're mentioning, that have to do with, you know, immigration policy, children. Uh, you know, how fair is it to children, some of our current policies. and But you're right, our book doesn't really, uh, doesn't really tackle those. Right. It certainly has implications for them, but, but we don't address them. But you bring up a good issue, which is that if we do a sequel, as we're discussing, this would be a good issue to address. Like gun control as well. Right. <laughs> Something I've right. been looking at recently. Right. If you could clarify what you mean by strict scrutiny. Um, there are different places, uh, chapter nine, yeah. for example, where you criticize Scalia style strict scrutiny. Could you explain to our listeners what, what you mean by that and what the criticism is? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, uh, strict scrutiny or those kinds of formulations may sound like arcane lawyers formulations. It's really amazing to me in reading the newspaper coverage leading up to the Windsor Doma case, how much the newspapers were talking about what level of scrutiny should the Supreme Court apply to uh, laws that embody uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and the like. So in constitutional law, in general, it's said that when a restriction or regulation touches upon a fundamental right, it triggers strict scrutiny. Now, that really is just lawyer, a lawyerly term for, for suggesting that that right should get really strong protection or the government has got to have a really good justification for restricting or regulating that right, okay? And generally, uh, in constitutional law, we contrast strict scrutiny, which you would apply, say, to... Uh, government prohibiting people from saying certain things on the basis of the content of their messages, or which would apply, say, to governmental uh, discrimination on the basis of race and the like. Typically, we contrast that with a highly deferential, rational basis form of scrutiny. And in short, the idea is that under strict scrutiny, the government has got to have a compelling governmental interest that it's furthering, and it has to be able to show that the the law is narrowly tailored to or is necessary to achieving that compelling governmental interest. That's the canonical formulation of strict scrutiny, whereas 
with deferential rational basis scrutiny, the government need only have a legitimate governmental interest. And they could make it up right. at oral right. argument. Right. It didn't have to be uh, what they were actually It doesn't have to be compelling. <laughs> it can merely be legitimate. Right. And it doesn't have, the law doesn't have to be necessary to furthering that legitimate interest. It's sufficient if a, ra- if a, a, a rational legislator might have thought right. that this law was rationally related to furthering that end. Okay? Mm-hmm. So in the context of uh, Windsor and Doma, the question was, well, what level of scrutiny should the court apply to classifications on the basis of sexual orientation? And this is just another way of asking how stringently or how, how suspicious should we be when the government classifies on this basis? Should we give stringent protection against these kinds of classifications or discriminations? Or should we be, uh, or should the court be quite deferential to legislatures when they regulate in this area? Now, you're alluding to chapter nine in our book, which we call the myth of strict scrutiny for fundamental rights. What that, what we argue there is that in the area of protection of basic liberties, strict scrutiny, which originally you might think of as a, as a tool for stringently protecting fundamental rights, Scalia has turned into a tool for denying protection of fundamental rights. Right. Because he says, in order for the court to give any protection at all to a right, like a right to same-sex marriage, the court has got to be prepared to say that this is a fundamental right that triggers strict scrutiny. Uh, And the recent court has been very leery about walking on that terrain of fundamental rights triggering strict scrutiny. So, for example, um, even when it comes to restrictions on abortion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court rejected Roe's strict scrutiny for an undue burden test. Or when they protected a right of uh, same-sex intimate association in Lawrence versus Texas, they didn't address what level of scrutiny was applied. They applied instead what's called rational basis scrutiny with bites. So Scalia was saying, hey, something, something illegitimate is going on here. They're giving strong protection to this uh, right of gays and lesbians, but the court hasn't gone through the hoops of saying it's a fundamental right triggering strict scrutiny. So we showed in that chapter that Scalia had turned this instrument of stringent protection for rights into a tool for arguing against stringent protection for rights. Uh, And we showed that throughout history, the court has not required strict scrutiny review when rights of what we call ordered liberty were concerned. They've instead applied a whole variety of of tests. And and if I could just say two minutes about equal protection, um, chapter nine is about substantive due process liberty, but we look a bit to some guidance from equal protection law. What, What was at issue in the June DOMA case, Windsor, was what level of scrutiny to apply under equal protection. And uh, the lower court, uh, just like the Obama administration, had urged the court to move to what's called intermediate scrutiny. It's not strict. It's not deferential. It's sort of heightened scrutiny. So it's you have to show an important governmental interest. You have to show there's an exceedingly persuasive justification. Now, Justice Kennedy just bypassed that completely. He did not take that question on. Uh, and the dissents pointed that out quite sharply. You don't even address the fundamental issue. What's the level of review? Instead, Justice Kennedy followed what he'd done in Romer versus Evans back in 1996, uh, which is to use what Jim is calling rational basis with bite, which is when there's a group that's been historically disadvantaged 
and the legislation singles them out in some way, you take a close look. So it's kind of, Kennedy says, discriminations of an unusual character. And DOMA was unusual, and so you take a closer look. So Kennedy kind of bypassed, should we, is it time in America to move up to intermediate scrutiny for sexual orientation? He put that to the side and just decided with the tools they already had available to them without kind of reaching out to, um, to, to take that step. And we show that that's the way courts have been operating all along, despite Scalia's myth of strict scrutiny, that the court has got to be prepared to enunciate the level of scrutiny and then rigidly police the different levels of scrutiny for the different types of classification. And that's just not the way the murder court, the Rehnquist court, or now the Roberts court has operated in these areas involving sexual orientation, whether it be under the due process clause or under the equal protection clause. Instead, They've said officially it's rational basis scrutiny, but instead of just deferring to whatever the government says is the interest, they put some bite into their analysis. So, for example, in the context of gays and lesbians, in the infamous case of Byers versus Hardware, the court had said that it was a legitimate interest for the government to try to protect traditional sexual morality. When it comes to the more recent cases, Romer and Windsor, the court says, no, that is animus against and a bare desire to harm a politically unpopular group. That doesn't even count as a legitimate governmental interest. So in that example, you can see that they're putting some teeth into the scrutiny. They're not just rolling over and accepting, oh, well, that is a legitimate governmental interest that the government says so. Right. Excellent. Thank you very much. We've taken up a lot of your time. As we enter our, our concluding minutes, is there anything that either of you would like to say about the book or the project overall? Well, it- well the project... <laughs> I guess the project continues. As I said, Jim and I were recently challenged to think about what we might say about the Second Amendment and gun control. And later today, I'm putting materials together for my children in the law class to look at some of those issues. Um, And as I said, I think the religious liberty issues are going to continue to percolate. What's been very striking to me is the rapid uh, pace of change in the United States since the DOMA decision, because even though the court didn't address certain things, the opinion has been used in many different ways to kind of move states along through the legislative processes as well as through the courts. And if I could just share one one thing with you um, that relates to some of the things we discussed in the book. In Illinois, they've been stalemated for quite a long time trying to pass a bill uh, to have marriage equality. They had a civil union law that they passed through the legislative process, but they hadn't been able to kind of uh, move to same-sex marriage. There were some lawsuits pending, but the impact of Justice Kennedy's Windsor opinion was that now in Illinois, married heterosexual couples got all these federal benefits, but couples in civil unions uh, did not. And that was the push for some legislators to realize, gee, you know, they really aren't equal. They are being treated differently. And then the other thing that happened was, believe it or not, Pope Francis's comment, who am I to judge, made some Catholic lawmakers think, gee, you know, I have my religious beliefs about marriage, but who am I to say that these people's relationship shouldn't be entitled to civil benefits just like mine are? So there was this kind of double whammy of the Catholic jurist and the Catholic pope kind of moving Illinois forward. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about doing a sequel to this book, uh, tentatively called Free and Equal Citizenship or, or, we'll, or Free and Equal Association, where we'll further develop some of the themes and apply it to some issues we didn't address. And also, 
apply it to the newly emerging conflicts, uh, uh, especially between uh, uh, anti-discrimination law on the one hand and religious liberty. I think that one general issue that we need to think about further is, besides, uh, or, or a couple of general issues are, what are the limits morals legislation, uh, and also what are the limits on civic education in America. We touch on these uh, subjects, and they arise in the context of a lot of these issues. And, and, so, and the limits of people's ability to opt out of right. public projects and public right. norms. Anyway, right. but you're probably over time, so we should let you. No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. This is exactly what we want out of our podcast. So I guess lastly, are either of you working on anything individually outside of the, uh, the scope of the ordered Liberty project? Um, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're always working on something, of, but I, I'm actually completing a piece, uh, for Michigan state, uh, university law review, looking back at Clintonism and some of the great rhetoric of the Clinton era about responsibility and opportunity, work, family, you know, et cetera, and it's kind of what's what its legacy is for today. And I, I kind of look at uh, the Family Medical Leave Act, the welfare law, and actually DOMA uh, as an outlier, and where we are today. Unfortunately, it's kind of becoming a depressing story because of some of the stalemates between Obama and, and Congress. But I, I am kind of looking at certain basic themes about work, responsibility, opportunity, not just talking about valuing families, I'm sorry, we're not just talking about family values, but having policies that value families. And it's kind of sobering to see that we're still stuck on some of the same things people talked about nearly 20 years ago about needing more work family policies. And so that's one project that I've been uh, that I've been working on. And I also intend to go back and do a historical piece. This is a little bit related to order of liberty, but it's sort of not something we discussed. Justice Scalia um, accuses the majority of branding everyone bigots who don't agree with um, uh, you know, marriage equality, and that intrigued me to think a little bit about the use of the label bigotry, to think about various forms of marriage, going all the way back to interracial marriage, maybe interfaith marriages, maybe people who oppose feminist egalitarian marriages might be called bigots, and then most recently, same-sex marriage. So I'm kind of interested in looking at, on the one hand, talking about freedom of conscience, on the other hand, supposedly branding people bigots for their views about marriage. Uh and uh, I'm uh, working on a, I write about theories of constitutional interpretation as well as uh, writing about, you know, what's the substance of our constitutional commitments. Uh, and I'm writing a book called Fidelity to Our Imperfect Constitution, which is a thoroughgoing uh, critique of all forms of originalism in constitutional interpretation and uh, a systematic defense of what uh, Ronald Dworkin called a moral reading of the Constitution, or, or what I've called uh, a, a philosophic approach to constitutional interpretation. And in this approach uh, to constitutional interpretation, you think of the Constitution as, a, as an experiment in self-government, as a charter of abstract powers and rights uh, to be elaborated over time, uh, rather than thinking of it as... Uh, a code of original meanings that are to be discovered and enforced over time. Uh, so, and I've written about this over the years, and now I'm in the about to turn to trying to pull it all together systematically. Look for it in 2014 or 2015. Right. <laughs> we always have plenty of things going on. 
I'm sure. Well, thank you very much, James Fleming, Linda McLean. It was uh, an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. And uh, the book, once again, is Ordered Liberty from Harvard University Press. It was published in 2013. Thank you very thank much. Thank you for having such an important show to actually bring serious books to serious readers. Yes, it's a great formulation and a great theory. Thank you. Thank you. We're doing our best. <laughs>